Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You can probably guess what our topic for today is because it's sort of the dominant topic of, of the episode, um, which is, relates to premarital sex and um, the status of a woman who is not yet married going to mikvah. And it, this came up. So, oh, so what I, I'll just introduce what I put into the chat. So one, the Safari sheet was the sheet that I was teaching about a little bit earlier, um, which is sort of a, a, an abridged version of um, a short from a sheet from my Rosh Hashiva rabbinical school, who does a podcast, Joy of Text, which I know Rabbi Shatz listens to. I don't know if anyone else listens to, but it's a, I mean, other people do, but I don't know if anyone cares. Uh, <laughs> so, I'm the only listener. <laughs> yeah. uh, but is, but is, uh, relates, you know, talks about a lot of different, you know, areas of sort of the intersection of, of sexuality and halacha. And one of his, one of the sessions, one of the podcasts was specifically about mikvah for women who aren't married. Um, and so that obviously comes up in this episode. And like I, said, I just put this, I put the uh, sheets there in the chat so you can see if you want to just kind of scan them, we're not going to be looking at them inside right now. Basically, as came up in the conversation with Avri and Hodaya, right? He said, you know, he's like, by the way, like, where does that prohibition against premarital sex come from? It's in the Torah. And she's like, well, no, not really. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, really from the, from the sages, you know, and, and so forth. And he basically ends up saying, oh, so it's really all just, a, you know, an attempt from, of the rabbis to stop, women from having premarital sex, you know, and it's sort of like, yeah, kind of, right. Um, which is, which is not untrue. Um, it's a debate within the earlier sources. Like the Rambam says there is a biblical prohibition against um, a woman who's not married having sex, basically sex outside of a marital construct, according to Maimonides is prohibited. Um, others disagree and say, no, you know, prostitution is prohibited. Uh, there's a verse that says, you can't, shouldn't have a, you know, a, an Israelite woman become um, like a prostitute. And there's another verse in the book of Leviticus about sort of prostituting out your daughters, but they say that's, that's prostitution. You know, um, there's actually a different construct which we see exist in the Torah, which is that of a pilegesh, um, often translated as, you know, a handmaid or a maidservant, maidservant more often, I think. Um, and a Pelagish is sort of a woman who is not married to a man, but there's a sense, there's sort of a formalized relationship between them, but outside the context of, of halachic marriage, which is chuppah and kiddushin, you know, the two stages of, of marriage. Um, and anyway, so there's this whole kind of back and forth within, within the sources about uh, is this really prohibited? Is it kind of prohibited? Is it not prohibited? You know, in the in North Africa and you know in Yemen and those areas in the Middle East, it was actually very common for men to have pilagshim to have um, maid servants um, through the Middle Ages. That was a common enterprise, and so what we end up with is um, the Rivash, who's a rabbi living in the 14th century, who kind of introduces an idea which had never been discussed before that point, which is, look, obviously unmarried women are forbidden, you know, it's forbidden to have sex with an unmarried women because all of them are in a state of nida, right? Until they've gone to mikvah from the time they first, you know, um, you know, become mature, uh, you know, uh, you know, go through puberty, sorry. Um, go through puberty until the time they go to mikvah, they're in a state of nida um, because they've never gone to mikvah before. And so it's forbidden halachically, you know, by Jewish law, it's forbidden to um, have sex. Yeah, thank you, Rabbi Shatz. Um, it's forbidden halachically to have sex with a woman who's in a state of nida. And he says, look, you know, all women who haven't gone to mikvah are in a state of, of nida. So there we go. Easy, easy answer to the question. And beyond that, says actually so what we'll say is it's prohibited for women who are not married to go to mikvah because if they go to mikvah 
then people are going to say, oh, um, yeah, so Norm asks about Judah having sex with a woman he thought to be single. So, so Rambam talks about sort of the difference as time develops. This is back in the day, people had prostitutes and that was fine until the Torah was given. Once the Torah, uh, this is, uh, Maimonides says this um, explicitly, he says, you know, before then, men and women, you know, men would go to the marketplace, they'd see a woman, you know, he offered to pay her price, whatever the, you know, her wages, whatever she um, demanded, and he said, fine, then they had sex, and that was fine, until the Torah was given, and the Torah says no. Um, so, anyway, the Rivash brings in this idea and says, not only is it, you know, you can't have sex with a woman who is in a state of nida, you are, uh, an unmarried woman can't go to mikvah because that would serve as a stumbling block because, you know, if she went to mikvah, then she would realize that there's not really a prohibition against her having sex, or at least not at a biblical level. Um, and that we sort of see in this episode, and we see Hodaya going to mikvah, and you can tell the mikvah attendant is sort of very confused because it's like, how, you know, how, not what's confused, your... Not confused enough. She should be more confused. <laughs> but, and she's like, you know, what's your custom? And Hodaya has no idea. And it's sort of like, yeah. So many times. Like, it was just, it was a whole, she was handing it to her and the woman did not take it. Anyway. Um, and so it's actually a conversation to this day about whether mikvahot need to slash should ask women or demand women prove that they're married before going to mikvah. I mean, in some places that is the case that, you know, they say, you know, unmarried women cannot come to mikvah and you have to show, you know, you need, I don't know how they actually, like what you have to do to prove it. Um, but somehow you need to like in some way demonstrate that you're married before they let you go to mikvah. Fine. Um, this is, like I said, a, still a conversation today um, because there are plenty of women who are in long, you know, say living with um a significant other, not married, perhaps becoming more religious and ask rabbis this question saying, you know, I live with my boyfriend, um, you know, we're having sex, I'm trying to become more religious, should I go to mikvah? You know, questions along those lines. And we sort of see a difference between what's said in public and in private. So you you don't see publicly declarations allowing women, single or unmarried women to go to mikvah, um, but privately, rabbis do give sock do give you know do tell women you know look if 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 no longer having sex is not on the table um it's better for you to go to mikvah and hopefully one day you know you'll either get married or you'll do more to and um sort of change your ways more formally or and so forth but this statement of the rivash of sort of transforming the conversation from being one about premarital sex generally to one about Nida specifically is one that is um, very much has stayed this day and this conversation about whether unmarried women are even allowed to be or whether we sort of say you have to stay in a state of Nida until you get married um, and then going to mikvah right before your wedding is sort of exiting that stage for the first time in your adult life, right? Um, that's still an ongoing conversation to this day. Okay. Rabbi Schatz wanted me to introduce the, what we're talking about today. So there, that's all by way of, of introduction. Uh, Rabbi Schatz, I'll hand it over to you if you have uh, things you would like to, to add. No, nothing. You can continue. Okay. Um, no, I have a lot to add. Uh, okay, so um, I when we when I watched this episode um, last night, I figured that mikvah would be something that we would need to talk about. But I actually expected that the whole idea of um, being Nita since the time that you got your period to the time that you get married um, was not a real thing. I had never heard of that before. Um, I, when I associate Nita with living, I associate it with partnership. I have never thought of Nita as something that a woman can be in alone and without any kind of repercussion on another person, especially of the opposite gender, because that's not how the the practice of Nida is often conveyed. You don't usually talk about Nida separate and apart from Taharat HaMishpacha. You usually talk about it as a way of understanding the um, 
the kind of the the kedusha, the the holiness around a partnership, and what those boundaries are in creating that holiness. Um, and so I had never thought about it as a, a single woman could be considered Nita. And I got very angry <laughs> um, and started looking up if this happened to be correct. Robbie Pernick told me it was correct, but I didn't believe him. And I went on my own uh, kind of wild goose chase. He's right, unfortunately. And it it is a principle that is with you from the time of your first period until the first time that you go to mikvah. So... For example, I will just use myself, right? As a person who's never been married and never been to a mikvah, I guess I've been in Ida for a lot of years, um, which I will say part of my frustration, I think, is around, and this is a conversation for a different time, around the fact that when we talk about Nida, we talk about it in a negative way. We talk about it as a sense of impurity, um, which I try not to do. I try not to talk about it as pure and impure, but being told that I've been in a state that, that often is defined as um, not as positive, isn't, it's not a great feeling. Um, I mean, it's, it doesn't affect me in any way. I'm not any different today than I was yesterday, but it's not a great feeling to have that told to you. Uh, and I would assume that that is something that is, that for women who do know that, um, that they, that they walk around kind of feeling that way and feeling that, uh, hesitation and frustration. So part of this rabbit hole that I went down, specifically knowing that I was coming to this conversation with um, someone from a different denomination, I tried to focus in my own. Uh, and part of what you will see in the more liberal movements is this desire to make mikvaot, to make a, a holy, you know, uh, vessel of water be something that is allowed to people, whether married or not. The LA mikvah, the Los Angeles mikvah, right down the street, well, not right down the street, but around my area, does not allow unmarried women to go to the mikvah. There's a very large sign on the door um, that makes it clear that you should not go as an unmarried woman. My guess is that people similar to Hodaya in the show, that people do go, uh, but that it is seen as kind of a violation of their rules. Same with the AJU mikvah, the mikvah that we use mostly for um, for conversions, is also not a place that women are going for uh, for purposes of of things that you might go for uh, as a married woman. So that's number one. Um, that, Sorry, can you clarify that last point you made? You're saying the AJU mikvah people do go there outside of a no, only like the traditional marital. Yeah, I mean AJU's mikvah. This is AJU's mikvah mostly sees converts and brides and doesn't see as many taharat hamishpacha um, people, candidates, women. <laughs> I don't know what word to use after that. Um, but I was gonna say patience. So that's not the right word. Um, but the AJU doesn't actually see that many women for those reasons anyway, just based on hours and it's on the campus of a college. And so it's just a different experience. Um, but they too, as far as I can understand from the website, they too are not, um, kind of bringing in women who are unmarried to their, to their mikvah. Um, now I will say in and speaking a lot right now. One of the things that I've never been to a mikvah, and I don't know if like inherent in, in just my upbringing, I knew not to go to the mikvah until I got married, or if that was something that was once told to me. I don't actually know, but I've never been to a mikvah for any reason. Uh, and and I do wonder if that's something that just you grow up understanding that you don't go unless you're converting and then you go for the first time at your wedding. I had a lot of friends go before their ordination, but I did not. Um, I felt uncomfortable going. So the other piece of this is this, this under, again, in the liberal world, though, in this podcast that Rai Pernick referenced. And I just shared again in the chat, by the way. Great. Rob Linzer does, it's it's important for you to interject your voice every few minutes because if not, I'm just going to talk for the next 40. <laughs> um, he does talk about how 
this is coming up in all denominations, just a little bit more loudly in liberal denominations than in like the modern Orthodox to the Orthodox world. So what I'm about to say, I'm going to speak for the liberal movements, but it is clear that also in modern Orthodoxy, for sure, which is where he's speaking from, uh, this is coming up as well, that there is something to be said for women who are practicing he he uh, divides it between intercourse and sexual activities is what he calls it. So intercourse versus other kinds of sexual touch and intimacy, he's separating those two. And what he says is that if you are engaged in intercourse, you should go to the mikvah as an unmarried woman. Why? Because you are recognizing that you are taking something on that you that according to Jewish law, you should not be taking on, but at least you're going that extra step of not being in Nida when you are having intercourse. Interestingly, and again, you can listen to this all on the podcast. Interestingly, he says the opposite for if you are not having intercourse, but you still have some kind of sexual intimate relationship, right? So there are certain, um, I guess, gradations of relationship that you might be in where a couple might decide that they're not going to have sex until, inter, I'll use these words, intercourse until marriage, but other sexual activities they can partake in before marriage for whatever reason. That's, that is a thing that people decide um, in the 21st century, and I'm sure the 20th and the 19th century. Um, but what he says for that is because there are societal norms and categories around a woman going to mikvah, that if a woman were to go to mikvah as an unmarried woman, not for sex, not for intercourse, sorry, I'll continue to try to use the word intercourse, not for intercourse, but for these other types of sexual activities, that that actually could put a stigma on her that is not warranted that people might think that she is having sex with her boyfriend fiance what have you um and so he actually suggests that in that category they don't go to mikvah and that they just recognize that what they are doing um is kind of outside of the realm of of what jewish law would suggest my last piece on my soapbox that is um growing taller and taller as i talk about this topic uh is that I actually, I find Nida and Taharata Mishpacha, which goes beyond just, just Nida, to be extremely important. Um, and it's something that as a conservative rabbi, I didn't learn enough of and am constantly trying to learn more about, just part of why this was frustrating as a side note, uh, constantly trying to learn more about because I find it to be something that unfortunately the liberal movements have have pushed aside, but that I believe, especially in a world where we are trying to get, and I'm just going to speak for women right now, girls to be more uh, aware of not only their bodies, but also their uh, sexual knowledge, right? Both of their own bodies, but just of what what is happening in general. Um, that that those boundaries give very healthy boundaries. But if you only practice them when you are married, right, and before you're married, you're going around assuming that you can be sexually active without having to take on those boundaries of going to mikvah, waiting a certain number of days after a period, those kinds of things, then you're kind of free to do whatever before you're married. And then all of a sudden there's, there are these stringencies. What I would love to see, and what a few rabbis who I read um, uh, talk about as well, Rabbi Chaviva Ner David, um, I'm gonna put this in the chat so you can see it, uh, is a woman who created the first, um, sorry, I can't speak and um, the first mikvah in Israel that allows for anybody to come at any point. There's a lot of uh, challenge around that, right? Women are allowed to come at certain times of their cycle, which would, for others, make it not uh, a a viable space for uh, for a mikvah. But what what she points to, and what I would love to 
to see happen is these boundaries of sexual relationship that are in my mind positive be put into place at a time in which women are at first becoming sexually active if that is happening before marriage as opposed to waiting till marriage to say okay here are all these boundaries learn them and hope you had fun while you were you know unmarried i think that would give a better sense of the holiness to a relationship and to the boundaries that are inherent and important in being in partnership um, if I had a mic, I would say mic drop. I don't have one. So back to you, Rabbi Parnick. <laughs> okay. Um, and I'll encourage you know other people, if you want to chime in with questions, I'll just start by sort of responding a little bit by way of some of the questions that are in the chat. So um, Norm was asking about if need is a principal reason why people are Shomer Nagia. And you're right in, in um, making that connection you know, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about Shomer Nagia and sort of what's forbidden, you know, how far does that extend? That was just a couple of weeks ago. Um, but, you know, you're um, a man shouldn't be physically touching a woman who's in a state of Nida. And so it's sort of, it works very well to basically say, right, essentially women who are not yet married are just sort of you know, as Rabbi Schatz was saying, sort of desexualized almost, and sort of like there's, you know, they're just sort of off limits. There's, they're in a state of nida or assumed to be in a state of nida. So, you know, you don't touch them. Even right, we talked about how shomer nakia doesn't necessarily mean something like a handshake. You know, uh, a holding hands, yes, shaking hands, maybe not. But if there's an assumption that oh, this woman's unmarried, she's um, hasn't been to mikvah. Okay, well now she's in the state of nida, so. You shouldn't be touching her at all, right? So it does sort of serve that that similar kind of um, barrier purpose that the whole idea of of saying you know unmarried women can't go to mikvah serves when it comes to sex. Of you know, lest you say, oh, I can sort of come close to the line. You know, you say that this this line is a uh, you know uh, a problem, and beyond that, it isn't. So maybe I can shake hands, and maybe hold, you know, keep holding the hand a little bit longer, things like that to say, you know what, it's just better to say she's in a state of need, don't touch it all. Um, actually, I, I disagree with that okay. like, wholeheartedly. Um, because I think that again, what, what, not you, Josh, but the, what, what that system then puts into place is Nida is something negative. And I think that that's part of what needs to change because being in a state of nida is not negative. It is a type of separation. And so if, if a man, okay, I'm all worked up. If a man thinks of, of any unmarried woman as being untouchable because of the boundaries that one should have around what sexual touch is and who to have that with. That's one thing. But if a man goes around thinking, I can't touch that woman because she's had basically her period for the past 13 years, like that, that to me as a woman is, is where this stigma needs to shift because it, it's that then ends up sounding dirty or impure, which is not, I, this is why I'm saying this is not you. I'm not speaking to you, Josh, but, but, but that is the generality of, of Nida in the world. And I think by saying that it plays into it a little bit. Yeah. That's a good point. Okay. Friedman's I see have a hand up. So. Yeah. Um, I went to the AJU mikvah. I think it was probably UJ at the time um, before we got married. Yeah. And um, I went for myself. My motivation was, you know, doing, doing, I mean, for us, but, but really doing it for me, I think similar to Hodaya in the show, um, doing it for herself. It was symbolic for her, but it strikes me as um, perhaps for women who then would continue going on an ongoing basis, are they doing it more for the man? so that he's not going to engage with somebody who's Nita, or is it also for the woman's benefit too? Do you want to answer that halakhically or do you want me to answer it? Why don't you take a, the first shot and then I'll okay. chat, pipe in with that. 
Um, I, you know, I, I would want to think that it's for the woman. I think that it's not. Um, when it's outside of marriage, right? When it's for marriage, I want to believe that it's for both of them. Um, in fact, I know many couples, uh, specifically conservative rabbi couples, uh, for whom not only does she go to the mikvah, but he does as well. Uh, when, like as a married couple to kind of show that this isn't just about you, this is about me uh, and us coming back together as a couple. Uh, I'm not sure that, that I in my own life would need to go that far, but I, but I see the beauty in that. Um, I think that in Hodaya's case, you're bringing up something that she ends up showing and feeling in that she, she clearly did do it for herself. And that's why she also couldn't go through with sleeping with him because she recognized that what she had done was not just to allow him to not, you know, be viable for Karait because, <laughs> because he had slept with someone, Anita, but that she was doing it for her and, and kind of came back to her from self when, when she realized that if it was for her, then she also shouldn't be engaging in the activity at all. Um, so that's my sense. I, but I wonder if Rabbi Pernik has a thought, or Rabbi Dinan has a thought. Um, so Rebecca, you're saying specifically in a non-marital, non No, I mean, in a, no, in a marital situation where the woman goes every month. Every month, she, yeah. Is she, is she doing it really for the man, for his benefit? Oh, or oh, yeah, no, 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 for I, herself? Is it, is, is it? So I would agree with Rabbi Schatz there that I think it really is sort of for the couple, right? The, it's such a, it's such an ongoing process, uh, right? The, it's sort of, you're constantly in aware and in communication because it's not just you go to mikvah and then you don't think about it for another month. There's a whole process of, you know, five days and then seven days and then you go to mikvah and that, right? So, and then you're aware of how long, how many days typically you have that you're in a state of tahara before you go to mikvah again. Um, and then you have your period and then right and then that five, seven process starts over again. So it's, it's sort of a, I would say it's very much for the couple in that there's there's that sort of mutual awareness of, again, it's not just like the time of the month in the way that people often will talk about, like, oh, it's that time of the month, like sort of the whole month <laughs> takes on its own character because it's it's very, right, it, it's not just one day or, or three days, it's it's like an ongoing awareness of where in the month we are and sort of you know, when, when you can sleep in the same bed and when you can't sleep in the same bed, right? And so it's, there's like all these pieces that go into it that I think it really, hopefully, you know, in sort of in the, the beautiful version of Nida, which is not always the way that it's, you know, it, that it's done, it sort of allows for the couple to um, be really in touch with one another and sort of in touch with this, you know, it's like in this process of- No pun know, intended. I was trying to not use words that would be punny. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, th- I think it's, right. It, it, it sort of works for both of them. And obviously the, you know, it's, I think harder on the woman and the woman sort of feels like, you know, it's a struggle as Rabbi Schatz touches on to not make it feel like, you know, the woman's at fault as it were for being in Nida, right? Cause that it could feel that way. Like, Oh no, we were able to sleep in the same bed. And now because of what my body's doing, we can't, and we have to wait 12 days. Um, right. So the struggle as Rabbi Schatz touches on is that it's something related intimately to the woman's body, but that has ramifications for the couple as a couple for both of them. So that's the part that's really hard to, to navigate how you, you really experience it as a, couples dynamic when only one person is, is, you know, physically experiencing this. And I, from couples that I know who, who practice Tahar and Mishpacha, I, I think it's really about communication and um, I, I'm not married, so I'm not speaking from my own experience, but I think that when, when there is, yeah. So Rabbi Dinan just wrote in, uh, in the, I think you meant from, but in the from world, Tara Mishacha is portrayed as a beautiful and renewing experience, right? Um, it often ignores the stress it puts on a woman and that these couples often spend two plus weeks out of every month not being able to touch. Oh yeah. And then you corrected from good. Um, yeah, I, I, 
I think even if you want to call conservative from, then, you know, more power to you. But but also in, in my world, um, the the way in which a couple talks about it and approaches it, I think, again, from the couples that I know, they find those days in which they're not having any kind of um, intimacy, right, of any kind, not just no no actual intercourse, but no touching, no sleeping in the same bed, those kinds of things. Um, without that, there is much more space and much more need for communication. And especially in the world in which we live in today, sometimes that communication goes away because of the rush of our lives or whatever. And having time to lay in bed and not be able to do anything but talk um, to those people who I've spoken to have said that it, it really brings extra closeness um, and a positivity to the relationship that that could be glossed over if there's never a pause from from kind of physical uh, communication and this leads us to to verbal communication so I again I this is one of the things that in the conservative movement we don't talk enough about um, and I I'm hoping to change that um, because I think it's really important and I think that it doesn't have anything to do with how from you are. I think it has to do with partnership and healthy relationships and um, okay, I'm getting back on the soapbox. Anyone, well, anyone else have any other thing? Yeah, I just want to chime in with one quick thing and then, you know, um, in talking about that idea of sort of the partnership piece of that, you know, I, I think it, it's a struggle that every couple has when, when it comes to childbirth. Right. And that it's sort of a partnered process, but only one party is physically experiencing this. Right. And, you know, in the you know, the husband says, oh, we gave birth. And it's like, you didn't give birth. Come on. <laughs> you know, so like it's there's that kind of similar dynamic about something where it's intended to be a partnership. But, it, but the woman is experiencing it physically in a very different way than her husband. And so I think I mean, I hadn't thought about this connection before, but in some ways, the need process is almost like almost like a preparation about the couple needing to communicate about things that are intimately part of the woman's body and not her husband, um, which is very similar to when they're having a baby for any couple, you know, or, you know, any, um, whatever, heterosexual couple having a child, you know, child. Um, so it's not something that's sort of totally exclusive here. I think it does have connections to other part of life as a couple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Other thoughts, comments? There's so much with this whole thing. Yeah. I'm just trying to take notes. Great, great. Well, it looks like Rebecca has another question. So <laughs> we'll go back to the Freeman House. Let her, oh, let, let her have let a question. This time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I also went to the mikvah before we got married. But um, my question is, uh, you were talking about the... Uh, the prohibition about having, you know, in some circles of having sex before marriage. What about sex after marriage? You know, if a woman is divorced or is a widow, what's the story there? Is it the same as premarital? You, uh, in terms of like with a, with her next partner? In other words, is the, if, if you follow the rule that you shouldn't have sex before marriage, does that basically mean you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, whether it's before or after? Meaning, do does a divorced woman still go to mikvah? Um, okay. Right? I mean, that's like one ramification, right? Should a divorced woman go to mikvah if she's, you know, she says, you know what, I want to remain sexually active. I'm divorced, you know. I mean, what often a divorced women still cover their hair. So would a mikvah allow her to come if they don't allow uh, people before marriage to come? I don't actually know the answer to that question. It's a great question. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I think often, we, you know, we saw this a little in the episode in a couple episodes ago about um, Amir's, about Amir's ex-wife, you know, that she was wear continuing to cover her head, but then she stopped covering her hair because for dating purposes, it was harder. Um, so, you know, that's something in which a divorced woman or a, or a married man, we talk about talis also, you know, a divorced man usually will continue wearing talis, even if in an Ashkenazi circle, you know, a single not yet married man won't wear talis. So, yeah, so that's a really interesting question about whether 
I mean, I can imagine a divorced woman saying, no, I'm not going to mikvah because I'm not having sex until I get married again. <laughs> like, like, that's an easy answer. Um, but the question about if a divorced woman says, you know what, okay, I got married, I'm planning on being sexually active, will she have an easier time getting a mikvah to accept her? Um, and I don't, I, I don't necessarily think so, but I'm not sure like on the ground with that, if there would be a difference there. Um, Rabbi Dinan says it's the same case as a single woman. Okay. They treat it as the same. Yeah. Okay. I knew he'd know. It was that Ramah education that got him all these answers. Uh, Norm, <laughs> do you have a question? Um, three actually. Yeah. One is, um, does a natural body of water such as the ocean qualify as a mikvah? I, I learned that it does four years ago, but I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Rav Linzer actually talks about this in the podcast also. Um, I hope he's listening to hear how much I quote him. Um, You can send him the recording. He's not listening. So (laughs) I hope he is, but he's not. Um, But he actually talks about this, that if, you know, in the same categories that I shared before of if a, if a woman is living uh, and having intercourse with uh, the man that she's, either dating or engaged to or whatever, that if she doesn't want to have to go through the process of discussing that with the mikvah guide or with a rabbi who would get her into a mikvah, that she can just go to a natural body of water. Um, and as long as there's someone there to witness that she's submerged herself uh, you know, completely, that that would be one way of getting around having to go to an actual mikvah. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, the significant other can serve as a mikvah guide in that concept, right? Like, Whoa, really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Rabbi did it, I don't know. Because, you know, in, in all the cases that come up about, you know, we're going on vacation to the Bahamas and we've been having trouble getting pregnant and, you know, the timing is such that I really, you know, need to go to mikvah and we're going to be in the Bahamas and so forth. Um, you know, because you might have noticed the the involvement of the mikvah guide. Now, there's someone who's igno- you know who's checking to see are your nails cut, are your is your hair washed, is your do you have contact, right? Nail polish, all that kind of stuff that goes on. Um, but that could be anybody who's knowledgeable. Rabbi Dinan says not guy, at least to me. I recall in a context in which there's no right. Typically, that's what we do. But I, I recall in a context in which um, you know, it's sort of the two of you are on vacation. There's no mikvah. There's an ocean. That I mean, the if the two of them are on vacation in the Bahamas, like, let's just assume that, you know, that, that sure, he can be a mikvah guy. Like, I, you know, I think I can't imagine... I can't imagine that it would be okay because that would be a whole category of seeing a person who, assumedly, he hasn't yet seen... No, no, no. Someone, no, someone who he has seen. Someone he has seen. Okay. And I'm going to say not the first time they're having sex, but like for a husband and wife, for example, that he could serve as a mikvah guide if there's no one else around. Okay. Isn't it also the case that having intercourse is one of the ways in which one can get married? Yes, Yes. it is. Yeah, I saw that question from before. So yeah, the rabbis try to downplay it, right? There's three ways you can get married um, through through, uh, Kesef, Shtar, and Bia. Uh, Through, you know, Kesef is what we do, money, but we do rings. We do all three. Well, we, I mean, yes, but really Kesef is what we do. Um, Kesef is an item of monetary value, which is the ring in most cases. Um, theoretically, you could say, you know, we're going to have sex and you, you need two witnesses is the challenge, right? But you, if you had two witnesses and you said, who, you know, say we're outside the room and are testifying to the fact that, um, testifying to the fact that, you know, they're having, sex uh, they're, they're, they're having sex for the purpose of marriage. Now, hopefully she already went to mikvah before that, right? So she's, she went to mikvah, she's now pure and so forth. Um, you know, there's witnesses there, then be, uh, you know, and they're having sex for the purpose of kibushin. Again, theoretically possible. Um, it's one of those things that's, you know, we don't actually do generally, but sometimes, but it's one of those things that people play with like, oh, well, we don't want to get married. We don't want to do the whole marriage thing. Maybe we'll just do that. But it's, but the, the Talmud tries to make it basically get rid of it. Yeah. Um, right. Rabbi Dinan notes to me that, um, that you technically you don't need someone to check. You just need to make sure there are no chatzitzot. Um, you need to make sure that there's nothing separating. So anyone can 
serve that purpose of making sure, you know, that nails, hair, and so forth, um, right. you know, yeah, anyone can theoretically have serve that role. I have heard of widows who, and also of, of women who have gone through menopause, who just have been in the custom of going every month to the mikveh and keep on doing it. Is that a yes. problem? No, I don't, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I've heard of that as well, that it's something that, you know, people, but it feels renewing. It feels. But th- right? that's, that's one of the beautiful ways that this becomes a pattern that is positive in a marriage, right? There are ways, Rai Pernick, I think, mentioned this before. There are ways in which Taharat Hamishpacha can become a burden, whether it's because the, the type of counting leads to what's called halachic infertility or because of, you know, just, um, like the burden that a woman might feel from a man to have to keep Nita, whatever it is, it could lead to burden. But if, if a woman post like going through menopause and post, you know, a time of being able to have children still feels this, uh, this connection to the, the cycle of, of Tahrat Mishpacha and going to the mikvah, and it's a beautiful thing to do. I'm not sure how the counting happens, and I don't know how, how she would calculate when to go. Well, yeah, I was going to comment on that, because there's this whole idea in um, sort of one of the extensions of Nida that drives people crazy. It is like a really complex area of law, which is called Vestot, um, which is the Veset is the, the, basically the amount of the length of your cycle every month. Um, and so even, you know, so if typically a cycle for a woman is like 28 days, then on the 28th day, even if she hasn't had her period yet, they shouldn't have sex because likely she's going to have her period that day because that's how long the cycle typically lasts, right? There's a whole thing about whatever. There's like, it's a, a very large area of law that like, I think at YU, they spend like three months learning Vestas. Like, it's like crazy. Uh, at YCT, we spent like a week. <laughs> but But anyway... And you know, it's before we just haven't even talked about it. Yeah, Rabbi Dinan sure. wrote, um, a postmenopausal woman need go only once and she's tahara for the rest of her life, which is like the opposite of how I'm feeling right. currently. Right. But but I'm thinking, especially when it comes to that idea of like the vestode of like being aware of like, typically I go to mikveh every 28 days. Like I'm very aware of how often I go. I can imagine a woman saying, you know what? I'm just going to continue to go once every 28 days because that's just kind of the routine we've gotten into over the last 25 years or whatever. Um, And and continuing to find meaning in that, even without the, you know, the biological feature attached, you know. Biological feature. Well, (laughs) what was the word you said? Biological clock. Yeah, even without the biological clock, you can still set Biological feature that is going down in history. Uh, (laughs) Any other thoughts, questions, comments? What about about a pregnant woman? I mean, she she could still be having sex early on in the pregnancy, but no periods. And she doesn't have to go to the mikvah also while she's nursing. Nursing women also don't have to go to the mikvah. Um, so yeah, you're right. There's sort of you get you get a there's a a break where there's sort of all of these very set time. You know, and I've seen people talk about <laughs> forget you know, but I've seen people post things about how like for years I've been either nursing or pregnant, and people have you know go through this of like you know people who have a lot of kids and you know in, in close proximity and they're sort of actually I haven't had to worry about mikvah for a long time because I've either been nursing or pregnant continually or sometimes both um and so sometimes it can be years between people actually going to mikvah and it's not because of anything they did wrong it's just because they're either nursing or pregnant I I had another question uh not quite not on the mikvah so much but what what do men do it seems that women have to do everything women are responsible for everything responsible for not getting men aroused responsible for cleansing in in the men especially the guys who just study all day yeah the, you know, the real haridi uh, i mean the guys who don't, maybe don't even work for a living because they, they may be uh, yeshiva teaches sometime but they don't they just read uh, what are you know <laughs> it just doesn't seem you know fair yeah um all you josh okay uh i'm gonna first respond uh rabbi didn't note it and i i should have mentioned after birth a woman has to go to mikvah um, because of, of natural bleeding associated. After with she gives birth. 
after she gives birth, right? So it's not in like a forever break. It's there, you know, there is um, a period of time after birth that. Um, Which speaks yeah. to what you were talking about before in terms of a man being present and being. Right, right. So there is that. Yeah. So that was separate, but um, an important point that, you know, there is there is mikvah attendance, you know, even after, you know, after childbirth, but not while pregnant. Um, okay, so. You no, know, you have to, you answer Jeff's question, I'll answer the chat question. Okay, well, I'm, yeah, I'm getting all kinds of, I'm getting the cheat sheet from, uh, from my brother-in-law, which is always, you know. No, give your answer. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, there, men do have responsibilities to not put themselves in situations in which, right, it's not the same, right, women have to go to mikvah and have to do badikas and, you know, like all this st- checks of, you know, like there's all this stuff that falls very squarely on the hands of the women that the men don't have in a, in a comparable way. And you're right that it's sort of an inequality there. Um, you know, men do have responsibilities to say, not get aroused and not spill seed outside of the context of, you know, trying for pregnancy, you know, things like that. But there's no equivalent to something like Nita, which is, you know, really a huge part of a woman's life for women who keep Tara out of Mishpacha. Like it's a it's a very significant part of their life. Um, and the men, again, other than say not sleeping in the same bed with them and things like that, you know, maybe sleeping on the couch or whatever, like or just to separating the bed. Most people just have two twin beds pushed together and then spread apart. Um is what most people do. But um I think sleeping on the couches for our different times. Right, right, right. Some people do that, but yeah. Um, yeah, so men are responsible, are supposed to be sanua, be modest, and are supposed, right, there's like some level, but it there aren't those same kind of like, let's say, I don't know, restrictions or, restrictions is the right word, but there's so much of Jewish law that relates specifically to women's bodies and there's not a parallel when it comes to men's bodies. There are like specific laws, but not whole, you know, areas of law in the same way. So there is definitely that um, that lack of parallel there, for sure. I will, I will just, <clears throat> at, great question. Um, I will just add to Rai Pernick's answer, which actually was a very nice answer. I think that part of, at least in the world where, where this is done well, right? Where the the man might have less, um, I'll just keep using his language, that man, men might have less restrictions or boundaries to uphold, um, but are still part of this partnership. Um, that I think that it's the man's job to be supportive and it's the man's job to help with the learning and the understanding and the um, the commitment to what this looks like for their family. Um, it's clearly not the same. You can't level those two things out on the same balance. But I think that, again, in the partnerships that I've seen where this is done well and with with a sense of um, partnership and with a sense of understanding one of the other, the woman might take on those things, but it is the man who is behind her who is helping her figure out how and why is this meaningful and what does this look like for the way that we're raising our children and um, why is this important to us and one of my favorite things that a man has ever said on this topic is we keep taharata mishpacha until my wife tells me that we're not going to right that that it is something that and this is in a community where that that wouldn't be such a crazy thing um that the woman isn't in her mind uh, well, actually, in his mind, obligated uh, to do so, but that the man is the one who allows for this to happen in such a way that there is kedusha, there is holiness around it. Um, and I hope that that's always the case. That it's not it's not being seen as kind of the woman's job to uphold, and the man just sits back and watches it all happen. As a as a nod to our men on the screen, um, Rebecca. Is slash- that wait the Friedman's? Uh- yeah, no, I know, but Norm also asked a question. Oh. Um, but I'm happy to answer it. Can we talk about why Hodaya felt yeah. she needed to leave and why she decided not to marry him? Yeah, I think that you'll see more of this in the upcoming episodes. 
Um, I think that she decides to leave. Oh, Rachel asked the question. Sorry. Um, I think that she, hi, Rachel. Um, I think that she decides to leave because she feels uncomfortable. I think she, she has grown up in a world in which sex before marriage is not something that she ever thought she would be doing. And I think that she recognizes in a moment that feels, I guess, heated to her, though we don't actually really see what's going on, um, that she needs to leave the situation and not be intimate with him, even if she has gone to mikvah. Now, some would argue, well, she's already been intimate with him because she's been kissing him. Fun, sure. But she, they haven't had intercourse. And I think that that's kind of the point at which she felt like she had to separate herself I think that she decides not to marry him because I think that there is an element of, um, and this was another topic that I thought that maybe we would discuss today, but we won't just get to get into it in depth. I think there is conversation specifically between people who are either from or Balchuva, right? Have become from and people who are not, um, not knowing kind of how to come to a common ground. And she does say that. He says, I want to learn. I want to be part of this. I want to figure this out. And she says that she knows, but she, but clearly it's a hardship for her. It's hard for her to have to tell him which spoon to use and all of those kinds of things. Um, and she feels that it might be a burden to, to bring him into a life that she is herself, um, kind of struggling with and unsure about. So I, I, again, you're going to find out more as the episodes go on. Um, but, that's my that's my takeaway from just this episode. Rebecca or Leonard? Uh, yeah, I was wondering about the men in the mikvah. I know there are some groups where the men will go to the mikvah before Shabbat. I just wondered, I mean, obviously it's not required, but what's that all about? Oh, yes. Rabbi Pernick, feel free. Oh, great. So um, that's really much more like a, a Hasidish idea I mean, at least today, about sort of purity. Look, I mean, we talk about um, purity and tahara, and there's an idea that, like, well, just if women are going to mikvah to become pure, shouldn't men be, if they're going to be praying, they're going to be communing with God and so forth, um, shouldn't they be pure as well, right? So Rabbi Schatz knows men used to go to mikvah every morning. Some men still do go to mikvah every morning. Um, And one of my rabbis it's not shows, mandatory any longer. It's not mandatory, but um, one of my rabbis in yeshiva who grew up Satmar talked about how the previous Satmar Rebbe was like really, really um, OCD about tarat goof, about like clean cleanliness of the body. And he would spend hours every morning cleaning before going to mikvah and like wouldn't dive in chakra until like 1145 because he had spent so long like you know, making sure every possible crevice in his body was clean before he went to mikvah and, and so forth. The restrictions on men's mikvahs are not the same as women's mikvahs. So, for example, you can use a pool that's a certain volume of water as a men's mikvah, but not as, you know, a woman's mikvah has to be living water. It needs to be, you know, a certain amount of collected rainwater. And that, you know, that's the way most mikvahs um are built is that they collect 40 seya of, of rainwater and then the, that water, they, it's called nishikat, sort of touches tap water and, the, and it sort of transforms it all into mikvah water or it's, you know, a, a living body of water like an ocean. For men, um, there's a lot more room for, for leniency. So, you know, example, using um, pools or other sort of non-natural bodies of water, especially in places where it's hard, you know, where there's not like a designated men's mikvah um but yeah but in certain places men do go every day but it's as opposed to women where you know we're saying it's it's a requirement and the the prohibition of you know sleeping with a woman who's in a state of nida is karin a spiritual excision there's no equivalent for men for men there's a desire you know you want to be tahor um i mean back in the day if you you know if you wanted to go to the temple for sure you had to go into the mikvah Nowadays, we're sort of all in a state of sort of tuma. We're all kind of impure anyway. Um, so people who want to elevate, in the same way the first thing we do in the morning is we wash our hands and say, I'll sort of purify our hands. Some people sort of extend that and say, I don't want, you know, I want to be pure before starting my day. Um, but it's not a requirement in that same way. And there's no, you know, punishment for not being tahor for men in the way that for women, 
or for men who sleep with women who are so there, there is like you know a prohibition that's being okay yeah well this has been great um yeah i don't have it <laughs> i don't really have any fine we can talk about toilet paper i don't really have any final things to say on this other than um i think it's a tricky i think oh jeff do you have something to say oh i just had something uh when uh uh who's it avi uh he used the wrong spoon Yes. Uh, I remember my father was in the delicatessen business, but when he came home, he had no idea. My mother kept the milkix and flashix silverware in different drawers. My father had no idea. And if he, when he was in the kitchen, it was a disaster in terms of uh, anything in the household. And it just made me laugh. Right. Uh, to think that it reminded me of my father. He didn't know I have any idea yeah. about the milkix and flashix. It's the yeah. famous story, the famous story of Rob Soloveitchik is you know, sort of the father of modern orthodoxy that his wife for a period of time was in uh, just like in the hospital or something. And he, you know, so he was taking over the kitchen. And when, when she came home, she, she was like, what are you doing? You changed up the whole kitchen. He was like, what are you talking about? I'm doing things exactly as it says in the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law. And she responded and said, you know, you and your Shulchan Aruch are chafing out my kitchen. Um, you know, so there's like, there's the a difference between the theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge, right? So, yeah. That's, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Elliot Dorf, who many people on this call know um, personally or know of, when he talks about Pesach, and typically he's the person at Ziegler, the seminary that I went to, uh, who talks about how to kosher for Pesach and shop for Pesach and all the rest of it. And the first thing he says is, really, I should not be teaching the class. It should be Marlon, um, who is his wife and who is the person who who is kind of in control of the kitchen and where things are. And he said, there have been many times I've walked into my own kitchen as a rabbi and a learned halachic man. And <laughs> and I do something wrong because I just it's her kitchen. And I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing in it. Um, yeah. It is, we'll get to Kashrut at some point. Um, there will be many more instances of, of messing up the Kashrut system uh, in people's kitchens. Okay, Rebecca, last one. Oh, I, I was just going to say. Yeah, you do. No, she's not. She's good. Never mind. Um, I, in, in the in the show, the thing about the laundry and doing laundry, hanging laundry, I, I actually was um, recognizing a tie to the whole mikvah um, storyline because for the single people like Yifat and uh, and Nati, maybe that was their ritual. The whole uh, doing laundry and you saw Nati, you know, who was hanging up in his apartment and then mm-hmm. the with the laundry line and being in control. And Yifat had taken the washing machine with her, and you know, maybe that was part of their you know cleansing and their ritual before Shabbat. And you know, because they're not they're single, they're not going to be going to mikvah. But I I thought. In, I thought that they purposely put that whole laundry thing mm. in the same episode as uh, as the mikvah. I like that. It's a very beautiful drash. That's a it's really a nice drash. Yeah. You saying that reminded me of you know when I watched part of Sergei when I was in Olpan, you know, and that was the homework every night. My Olpan teacher forbade me from using the dryer because she said I had a dryer in my apartment, but she's like, "You're in Israel." It's summer. Like you're going to be using the dryer. Just put, you know, I never used a clothesline before. She forbade me from using the dryer. She's like, you have to put it out on the clothesline. So anyway, that's um, my surgeon and clothesline connection, but yours is more beautiful. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I hope that you, that you look at these sources. I sent three articles, one of which Rabbi Dorf is actually quoted in, um, and the podcast and the, and the source sheet that Rabbi Parnik put out. Um, I'll just say this and then Rabbi Parnik, you can close for us if you would like. I, one of the articles that I sent you that, um, that Rabbi Dorf is quoted in talks about how to sanctify relationships in or out of marriage. Um, and how this, the, the idea of Tahar Amishbacha is supposed to bring some of that sanctification to a partnership, but because it's only in partnership, we often don't think about how people who are dating need to also figure out boundaries for their own holy relationships. And what does it look like to be in a holy relationship? And Martin Buber, as we all know, you know, I am thou and all of that and how to, how to really consider people for who they are and, uh, and not just think about them as, 
as you know just a human but also a soul um and so i i hope that this is a conversation that you'll think a little bit about what goes into those relationships and Nida, no Nida, women going to mikvah before marriage, not going to mikvah before marriage, premarital sex, no premarital sex, whatever it is. Um, but allowing for all of our relationships to be ones that have boundaries that that contain then within them holiness and sanctification of some kind. Because I really think that that is the power that we get when we are in a marriage that Tahara Mishpacha brings in and that I hope in these kinds of uh, forward moving conversations that we can also bring into the way in which we date and the way in which we are in relationship even before there is a ring on anybody's finger. So that is my last piece. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.